0: Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time we listen to a few stories from Mike Arthur and his friend Mark Macario with the overall theme that being a captain for a commercial airline is not as easy as it may seem.
1: Cathay was one of the few airlines that still allowed the captain to be a captain in as much as that you had a lot of responsibility in terms of deciding the operational side of the flight. We started in Cathay with the first airline to uh, fly ultra long haul flights to Hong Kong to London and everybody said it'll never work. People won't sit there for 12 hours, they, they, they want to get off and stretch their legs. And of course, it, wasn't, it didn't happen. It was a big hit. It was the way people wanted to go. They got an airplane. They didn't want to get off in Delhi or somewhere to, to go and wander around an airport terminal for 45 minutes then get back on an airplane again. Just was a waste of time. Initial airplanes that we had were somewhat limited because of the takeoff thrust of the engines. They were being pushed right to the limit. So quite often you find that you couldn't tie all the freight perhaps the airline wanted you to carry, if you were going to make it to your destination. For every extra tonne that you carry, you require another half a tonne of fuel to carry that tonne for the 12 hours. Passengers, actually, the people sitting down in in zoo class, are only contributing up to about break-even in most cases. The tickets, probably, uh, some of them, are actually below break-even. They make the money at the front end of the airplane with the high-value passengers and the underfloor freight. Because basically the underfloor freight area is free, it's there, it's empty. Especially in something like a 747, you've got vast amounts of underfloor space. But it does cost you fuel to carry it. So if you're doing an ultra long haul flight, if you want the passengers to get there, sometimes you have to offload freight. There's two different kinds of freight based on an airplane. There's the big bulky stuff that people don't pay very much to put on airplanes. And then there's a the small parcel, which is paid for more on an individual. Well, the, the small parcel freight. Is very valuable because it's each parcel has to be paid for basically so you would always try and offload the bulk stuff and leave the mail and the small parcel freight on board as much as you could you'd be better off leaving a ton and a half of small parcel freight off and putting off five ton of the other stuff so it's it things like that will very much left up to the the commander of the airplane uh, in Cathay and deciding how much fuel you're we going to carry and looking carefully at the weather and sometimes you, you balance the risk factor. When I say risk, not risk from the point of view of danger and killing people, but the risk that you may cut the fuel right down to minimum because the weather was forecast good on route and forecast good for your destination. You might actually depart with uh, virtually no fuel for alternate because you know the regulations will allow you to still achieve the flight. And you know from experience that you may be able to pick up a bit of fuel by doing the odd shortcut. Now, if it all goes against you, and fortunately for me, it never did go against me, but if it all goes against you, you could end up having to land somewhere else to pick up fuel, then you're in, then you're in deep poo. Because although they don't mind you making all the decisions, they want you to make the right decisions. For example, yeah, the, the example of running an airplane is that one of my, actually, it was one of my last flights with Cathay. We took off at 11 o'clock at night, on a non-stop flight to Frankfurt. And this was from the old airport at Kai Tak and made the turn out to the north, northwest, to enter Chinese airspace, which is only 30 miles or thereabouts um, before you actually bump into the Chinese airspace. We were changed over to the um, Chinese controller and they basically said, do not enter Chinese airspace. You do not have diplomatic clearance. Every single country requires either you have a blanket diplomatic clearance or that you have a license to operate it. But in the case of the Chinese, they require every airplane for every single flight to have filed and received a diplomatic clearance. I don't know if that's still in, in effect, but they're, they're so bureaucratically entrenched that it's very difficult to get the Chinese to move. The end result was that, that somebody either somebody had forgotten to put in the dip clearance or it hadn't come through or the Chinese hadn't done it, or anyway, the end result was that we didn't have it. So we were forced to turn back. And of course, we were going up through China, which is the route that takes you through Kunming and then across to Calcutta, Delhi, and then up through Russia. is the shortest route for most occasions to go to Frankfurt. We were then presented with how the hell are we going to get these passengers, nearly 400 passengers, to Frankfurt, Um, having to go on a much longer southern route. And it ended up with uh, I gave control of the airplane to the first officer and then started carrying on a conversation with the operations people on the ground in Hong Kong. And I got out my really old fashioned circular slide rule to do a very rough calculation to see how far we could fly with the fuel that we had and and where the places were, where the most suitable places were that we'd have to land to refuel because there was no way that we could make it nonstop. And uh, we got the senior ops controller out of bed at, at midnight and got him in. Um, that's his job, to help the crew. And although the captain has to make the decision, the ultimate decision, it's nice to have all the information. We picked Istanbul because we were going to fly right over the top of it. And we had ample fuel to get there. But this is where you then turn to your people on the ground and say, do we have the staff in Istanbul? to deal with a 747 dropping in on them in seven hours time or eight hours time. Can they do it? And I had no idea. That was my choice of where I wanted to go, but there's not much point in landing there and finding there's nobody there or the only people are there are Turkish Airlines and they don't want to deal with you or they're dealing with you know their own airplanes. So the answer was, yes, we have staff there. Um, we can get them all out. And although Istanbul was not an online station, an online station being somewhere where the airline goes on a regular basis. They had staff there. They had a ticket office. They had uh, uh, staff downtown in an office at uh, some kind of travel agency. So they were all pulled out. And at, I don't know, it must have been four o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning, local time, there we, we front up. The passengers were woken up as we started going into Istanbul and tell them, that, well, actually, we're not where you thought we were going to be because the Chinese wouldn't allow us into their airspace. And you have to tell... I, I think you have to tell passengers the way it is, not make up some stupid story. Although it, aviation is, is difficult for most people to accept, you've got to assume people have got some level of intelligence. We told the passengers. Some of them weren't very happy, but we landed and uh, in a very, very short time, we refueled the airplane, put some more food on for them. Uh, I got them to uh, Frankfurt. Actually, I think it was London we went to. Yes, it was London. We took, it was a London flight, not a Frankfurt flight, um, to London. And we were only somewhere in a region of an hour and a half late on the original schedule time. So it shows that by cooperation of, of the aircrew and the people on the ground, you can achieve a, a good result um, and keep everybody happy. And that's what it's all about, keeping people happy. Uh, but it could have gone really badly. Originally, the the operation staff said, well, why don't you land in Bangkok and refuel? Uh, We've got lots and lots of staff there. I said, well, if I land in Bangkok, um, it's only two and a half hours from Hong Kong. It means that I've burned 30 tons. It means I've got to to dump 50 tons of fuel to get down to landing weight. you really wanted me to do that? And that's the kind of thing that pilots or captains have to deal with, and that's what you're paid for. The guy on the ground didn't appreciate. Didn't even cross his mind that, that that's the kind of the cost would have been involved. In some ways, it would have been better, but in other ways, it wasn't because not only did the uh, do we make it and save it costs virtually no more than the non-stop flight, but the passengers are coming out of Hong Kong. They get a meal uh, about 30 minutes after takeoff, and they would have had to clear it away halfway through that. Especially first class, which runs to several courses. So they would have missed out on half their meal, as well as throwing 50 tons of fuel out the window. So that that's kind of the type of situation that, that you have to deal with. It, it only ever happened to me once in my home career, whole career, that kind of thing. It may never happen to you, but there'll always be something like that down the line, which is, is waiting to, to, not to trap you, but to test your, your ability to... And that's part of the fun of flying big airplanes for an airline, especially when you've got a... Cathay was superb in support of their air crew superb. And uh, the, the the organization was excellent. I, I can't speak for other airlines, so I flew for British Midland, but that was a totally different thing altogether.
2: Uh, coming out of uh, Houston on the last end of a three-day trip, and I had uh, the surprise of having a Czech airman decided to ride with me. That's Mike's friend, Mark Macario. Going from Houston to Denver, and then I was going to Deadhead Home on the flight. And I checked the weather, and uh, it was... VFR, but there was just some chance of some uh, low clouds that were going to be coming in over Denver Airport that time of our arrival. And the Czech Airman was getting checked by the, uh, the FAA, so we had two Czech people in the cockpit besides myself. I decided uh, I was going to add some gas to the fuel and the Czech pilot said, no, 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 that's fine. It, it, we should be fine, no problem, you know, it's, it's, I'm making the decision because I'm sitting in the right seat. I'm checking you, you know, you should be fine, no problem with the fuel. Now, it's only an hour and a half, two hour flight up to, to Denver. You know, so it wasn't really awful. And the weather was forecasted to be better. Well, then lo and behold, as we start our way up to Denver, and we're not more than a half hour out of Denver, we started getting the, uh, the weather on the ATIS up there. And all of a sudden, uh, they had a ground fog come across and started to have the stu- shoot approaches in the Denver. And I looked at the ca- captain beside me, and I looked at the checker behind me, and I immediately got on the phone to the dispatcher was saying, we need an alternate because we don't have one. And the weather in Denver is now not VFR, um, I'm going to land here if we don't have uh, clearance within the next 15 minutes to make an approach into this airport, because I don't have the fuel that I thought I was going to have to be able to go in there VFR. And, of course, they stumbled around and they, they got back to me and said, oh, that's a good plan, Captain, okay. And, you know, and, but by the time we continued on to the airport, the weather had gotten enough that they, they were shooting the approaches and there wasn't any delay issues, but it could have turned into a scenario where now I'm scrambling to try and find some place to go with the airplane had I not preempted and checked the weather enough, and, and made that call to the uh, the dispatchers. See, because you can't just automatically say i want to go here. In an emergency, you could, but what the company tries to do is they have to also have to check to make sure the runway requirements are good. You know, there isn't any no-tams about you know approaches being you know not available for the facilities and then also as do we have any contract people there on the ground to, to maintain the airplane if we have a problem with the airplane or things like that so there's a lot of background information that I don't see up front which is why they'll pick some particular airport as an alternate not necessarily the one you just happen to be over at the time there's now granted I still have my captain's authority to say no I think we need to land now and and can do that safely but in the scheme of things to try to make the air operation, of the airline go smoother. You have to have some coordination with the, with the ground people, otherwise it would never work. So this one turned out okay, but only because I preempted these guys to say, I need to let, make a decision. I'm gonna be going to this airport now, Colorado Springs, which was just south of Denver. And it worked out fine, because by the time we got up there, they, the minimums had come up, so we didn't have to shoot a Cat 3 approach, <laughs> which I thought I was gonna to have to do, which now I'm scrambling to try to get it done. So. But the, the theme of things is they need to still respect the captains, and that has been lost a little bit over in the last few years. Our, I don't want to say our power, but our authoritative role in the, in the cockpit has been eroded by, somewhat by automation and, and also by, you know, automation from, you know, the, the ground people, you know, feel that they need to control you versus, you know, because, and as Mike tells you, the dynamics during a flight are always changing. And you have to be able to react to that. You just can't be sitting back and watching things happen. You have to be proactive in, in flights, especially long distance flights like we do. Uh, it's been forced on them because of the operating costs
1: are so paramount over and above what the feelings of people are. So the guys in ops and operations and the planning people sometimes have a, sometimes have a more complete picture of the weather. Um, they don't have the operational experience So it's a balance between the guys in the operational side on the ground and the captain. But in general terms, from what I've heard, it now seems to be a lot of the decisions have been removed from the captain. He's told what the freight load is, what the passenger load is, and by the way, this is how much fuel you're taking. And he has to have a really good reason for for changing that. It wasn't like that with Cathay. We were very much our own masters which was
2: nice. The airlines are slowly realizing that they have to start paying pilots you know on a reasonable scale and not expect them to be you know indentured servants you know because when somebody leaves a school like Riddle you know they have such a debt to their name that uh, you know it takes them years to pay it off the first job that you usually get in a commuter airline you don't make even enough money to qualify for food stamps. You know, and that's the 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 bad part of this business that it, people don't recognize the effort that pilots put into obtaining their careers. Just like somebody, as a professional dentist or a, a doctor, spends years schooling to, for their profession, pilots do the exact same thing, but they're not recognized as that. They pi, people see pilots as, as just recreational, you know, pastimes and as expensive hobbies, not as careers. Uh, but yet, people want to go to. Disneyland every every week, you know, on the back of an airliner, and not expect you know, to pay full fare. They would rather pay bus fare, not uh, recognizing the expertise that it takes to keep people safe in an airplane. So that the public recognizes that we're not just glorified Greyhound bus drivers, you know, in a uniform, and that's the perception that a lot of people think that we're just glorified bus drivers. As I said before,
1: it's it is something you have to come to terms with because you see it as a first officer. But it's only when you actually get into the left seat that you realise how much is involved. It's moving a small village halfway around the world and doing it safely and commercially viably. That's that's Being a captain of a, a big airplane these days, I suspect there's still a lot of that is there. And that's why um, I've heard people say, oh, well, I wouldn't go into airlines because it's just so boring. It really is. It's just, it's not. It, if you're flying... I I don't know if I'd want to fly or have flown for someone like Southwest or JetBlue, which are more the same deal every day in as much as you're just Orlando, Dallas, Dallas, Denver, Denver, uh, somewhere else, and and then back or somewhere, and then you overnight in maybe San Francisco somewhere, and then you do the same thing in reverse. I don't know if I'd want to have done that, um, but certainly long-haul and ultra-long-haul flying with a little bit of the relatively short stuff thrown in was... I felt was a very good balance.
2: It's an exciting career, I will say that. There's some times that are very tedious, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's probably the nicest job I like because of the variety type of flying I do. Sometimes I go to the same cities a lot in one month versus other times, but it gives me the flexibility to do things that I would never be able to, be able to do. It's both my schedule time and the camaraderie of the people that you fly with. You never get to see a nicer big group of people that you get to fly with
0: it's
2: more complicated than people think, right? A, a lot more, a lot more, a lot more in. I mean, there's a
1: lot, don't get me wrong, it, there's a lot in flying a Southwest 737 from say, uh, Orlando to, uh, to, to New York, one of the New York airfields. There's a lot to contend with in terms of you're going into one of the busiest traffic areas in the world, and there's no way you could step straight into the left seat of any airplane going in there. You, you have to do your apprenticeship. And some people think that they're ready long before they really are. And it it does, it takes a lot of time to not be fumbling around. You read, not every day, but regularly, um, people who are flying general aviation airplanes. And they get themselves into all kinds of trouble because they don't see it coming. And that's what it's all about, I think, in aviation, is the experience level, to be able to see it coming before it hits you. Um, And makes the day really very unpleasant.
0: (laughs) Mike Arthur is retired from flying airlines today and lives at Love's Landing. Mike has an amazing wing Derringer, which is a twin engine airplane made in the early 1980s, but looks super modern and something like out of Bond movie. Mark Macario is still a commercial pilot as a 7576 captain for United Airlines. Mark came in during my interview with Mike to meet up with him so that they could both fly to lunch. And while he waited, he was kind enough to offer his perspective on the current state of commercial airlines. I have referred to a job of being an airline pilot as simply a glorified bus driver before, but hearing the other side of this story from people I've interviewed and seeing the work that my friends put towards their commercial pilot training here at Embry-Riddle makes me realize the dedication and effort that goes into pursuing and actually doing this job day to day. Hopefully, you've seen this in the same light. You can check out pictures of Mike and Mark, some of the planes they flew, and some pictures of Mike's winged derringer, along with more information about these stories by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that it's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.